we had some friends in our first ministry in Kansas, young married couple, that were so excited to start their married life together in a brand new home. They, they had managed to get an FHA loan and they, were, they bought this <clears throat> plot of land in town a small town, 400 people, you know, and so they, they bought this plot and they were so excited to build this. The thing is, is that the loan came with some conditions. They had to start at a certain time and end at a certain time and, and, and they, they had it worked out where, you know, they were going to, the plan was, the schedule was to go on their honeymoon and come back and in their, move into their new house. They were so excited. And the only way it was going to work was that they had found a local builder who had a reputation for being able to build homes faster and cheaper than, like, nobody could touch this guy. And the, rep, his, his, uh, the story went that he would sometimes, like, eat a sandwich and pound nails. Like, he was just one of these guys. He could build a house for 35 bucks a square foot. Yes, holy cow. But here's the deal, Clay. He didn't warranty his work because he has a waiting list, right? If you could do it that cheap and that fast, there's a waiting list. He would not come back because there's somebody else in line. And so they, they, had managed, they had all the numbers. It was going to work. Brand new couple. They had good jobs. They were working hard. They saved money. They were going to move into this house. Problem was that his team did not allow enough time for the concrete in the footings of the foundation to cure before they built on it and it cracked and the county building board I don't know whatever they called it Labette County Housing Authority I don't know um, they wouldn't give a permit for residency to your occupancy for the house until they fixed it now the good news is they eventually got it fixed they moved in we went to the housewarming it was beautiful everything's great but it caused the first couple years of their marriage to be a lot more stressful than it needed to be and the obvious moral of the story is this. If you want something to be solid, you better pay attention to the foundation. And so when Jesus ends the Sermon on the Mount by telling his disciples, pay attention to what you build your life on, his disciples would do well to listen and obey. That's what we're going to talk about this morning. Open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 7, verse 24. We're going to look at the conclusion to the Sermon on the Mount today. So grateful that you are with us today. For those here in the room, thank you. Uh, for those watching online, uh, grateful that you logged in. While you're turning there to Matthew 7, 24, let me just say, happy birthday, Chapel Rock. Now, we're saying birthday today. We'll say anniversary through the rest of the year. Today marks the, the beginning of, of really a year of celebration. Uh, I don't know, some of you, like, you have a birthday week, like, the week where your birthday falls, you're like, all week long, we're doing fun stuff. Some of you have a birthday month, and you need to chill. Um, we're going to have a birthday year, uh, and so I hope you'll take a second to, to check out the cool stuff in the lobby. I hope that the sugar rush that you're on from the birthday cake donut uh, lasts through the whole sermon, uh, and you don't collapse by the end of it, but... Uh, it's just really cool. A lot of memories out there. Uh, today marks the beginning of this you know, year of celebration. And over the next 12 months, you'll hear us uh, talk about this and rejoice together over what God has done here on the west side of Indianapolis over the last six decades. In that time, there have been five uh, senior preaching ministers. Um, uh, Deb and I have the privilege of, of, of serving uh, you in that role. 
uh, have been since January 1st of 2017. Uh, grateful for that opportunity and just want to take a second to thank you again for the time away. The first chunk of the sabbatical was a blessing. Um, uh, eager to tell you more about it. I won't, I won't, I'll say a little bit today, but I'll tell you more later. Um, so grateful for uh, the opportunity to do that. Thank you. Um, Deb is not in the service right now because she's serving Jesus in her favorite way. She's holding babies in the nursery. Um, so that's where she is right now. But, but my predecessor, Fred Rocky, was in this seat uh, for 17 years. Fred and Sherry, would you guys stand? We want to thank you for your years of service here in that role. Appreciate you. And we're privileged to have Neil and Karen Norheim here. Would you guys stand up? We want to thank you also. Neil, would you join me? I've asked, uh, Neil was here uh, ten, about 10 years, right, sir? That was, you were the lead guy for, for about 10 years, is that right? Uh, no, actually, uh, Karen and I were married 60 years. 60 year. years, yeah. Not I today. I wasn't asking about your anniversary. I was how long were you the senior guy uh, here? Eight and a half years. Okay, all right, all right. I, got the, I did the math wrong in my head. Greek and Hebrew, I can do math. I'm not going to make any comments about that. Yeah, actually, Karen and I are going to be celebrating 120 years. 120 years of marriage. She's been married 60. Yeah. I've been married 60. I can do that math, yeah. <laughs> you okay with that yeah, math? Yeah, I can do that, yeah. yeah. Uh, in the process, I want you to know, uh, lots of lessons. Uh, God used the preparation time for me for 20 years before I came here. Mm -hmm. I was ministering in troubled churches, and he was just getting me ready to come here to help. So I got to serve here. And one of the blessings, I mean, so many of them happened because I got to see hundreds of people make decisions about Christ and accept him or bring their fellowship to this congregation. There were others, as already mentioned, uh, entertained ministry, missions, children, music, and went into ministry. It, what an exciting time that was. And uh, some of you were involved in that. And God continues to bless uh, the church here. We've taken people from in missions and sent them into the world, and now the world is coming here. Yeah, that's right, in our backyard. It's, uh, yeah, yeah, right in the backyard. It's a wonderful thing. And so he's continuing to work and has continued to work in us. Finished uh, 13 years in Ohio, transitioned to a church that's continuing to grow. It's yeah. just fun watching that mm. take place. Began a new ministry, Norheim Church Consulting. And that means you're getting old and you tell people what to do and they still don't do it. Uh, yeah. I didn't say that in first No, service. you didn't. Yeah, I, that's I, good lines. You should that have, in. Yeah, yeah. yeah, put it in here. Um, but I, in the process, ministered in three different churches and interims, and now I'm teaching a Sunday school class every week. Obviously not today. Mm. But I am just excited about what is ahead for Chapel Rock and the, what the Lord is going to do. And let me just remind you that at the heart of all of this is still that foundational thing. Love the Lord with all your heart, soul, mind, strength, and neighbor as yourself. Listen carefully for that because Casey's going to bring that back in just a minute. Well, one of the great pieces of advice and counsel that I had in a very difficult time came from a leader here. And he said to me during this difficult time, Neil, in the midst of all of the noise, make sure you hear God's whisper. Isn't that good? Yeah. I want you to hear God's whisper. Mm. Let me pray. Please. Thank you, Lord, for the sweet 
blessing of loving you and loving your people. For the truth of your word, the difference that it makes in us and the difference that it still makes in the lives of other people. And so we commit ourselves to that and ask that you will bless Casey and all the leaders in this congregation with a sense of boldness, direction of your spirit, and the confidence that your presence will make a difference in us and anyone who gets to meet and hear our message. We ask for your blessing and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, brother. Appreciate you. Grateful you're here. Thank you. Neil's predecessor was a man named Dennis Fulton. You saw him in the video earlier. You'll hear a little bit more from Dennis uh, later. We invited him to be here with us today, too. Couldn't make it um, for various reasons, but he did send the video in lieu of that. And so I'm grateful that he was willing to take the time uh, to do that. Dennis's predecessor, Brad Walden, the first senior minister at Chapel Rock, is with Jesus. And I got the privilege of attending his uh, funeral a couple years ago in Kentucky and I uh, look forward to meeting him one day. Um, never had that opportunity, so eager to be able to do that. We will celebrate for, for a year, 60 years, and we'll conclude uh, this 60th uh, Diamond Jubilee by opening up the time capsule in the lobby. I don't know if some of you might be new, you might not have noticed that. Around, nearby the, around the corner from where the coffee is, we have a time capsule, and we sealed it on February 2nd, 2020. Then the world went nuts. Um, but uh, it, we'll open it February 2nd in between services, right? So February 2nd, it's a Sunday next year. And it's, it's, our, it's our 61st birthday to the day. It was February 2nd. This is the closest Sunday. So 61st birthday, that'll be the capstone, the end of this year of celebration. You'll hear more about it as we go. For some time now, I've weighed very carefully what I would say to you. And reflected deeply on Chapel Rock's history and her present and her future. Something I'm tasked with helping to create by God's grace and the power of his spirit. And it's a daunting task to try to coalesce everything that we have been and are now and need to become into a few significant statements. But that doesn't mean that's not worth doing. So let me try. Here's what I want to tell you today. The only kind of life that will thrive no matter what is one wholly built on Jesus, totally built, totally founded on him. That was the conclusion that Jesus came to in the Sermon on the Mount 20 centuries ago on that mountainside in Galilee, and it's still true two millennia later. Now, assuming Jesus said this at the traditional location, the place now called the Mount of Beatitudes, the place where he said this provides a beautiful view of the Sea of Galilee, and it's just possible, because this is how God tends to work, that a storm was rolling in. As Jesus is telling this parable, I didn't take this picture, Jim. It was, it was beautifully sunny the day we were there last year. Um, this is somebody else took this. But you can see the storm kind of build in over the Sea of Galilee. And Jesus tells this parable at the end of his message about a storm that comes. Let's read that together today. Matthew chapter 7, verse 24. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. Let me pause right there. The word translated rock, there are two main words in the Greek language for rock. One is lithos. It's where we get our word lithography. When you carve on rock and put ink in it and stick a paper on it and, print, and it makes a print, all right? That's not the word. This is petra. Some of you Gen X people remember the Christian rock band Petra, right? It's, it means rock, but, but the, the implication here is bedrock. 
foundation rock. That's the word that Jesus uses. He built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house. Yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority and not as their teachers of the law. Over the last 60 years, when Chapel Rock was at her best, we were wholly built on Jesus, totally focused on him. And while the west side of Indianapolis is very different today than it was 60 years ago, Jesus' mission for his church at 2020 North Girl School Road has not changed. In fact, I would contend that as cultural Christianity, civil religion, God, mom, and apple pie, right? As that loses capital in the marketplace of ideas, it has never been more important for Jesus' church to focus on being wholly built on him. Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount is designed to give us these bedrock beliefs and practices that we should have as his followers. And when we build our life on that bedrock, both hearing and doing, the same storms and struggles that destroy others will pass over us and leave us unharmed. Not unchanged. Can't help that. But unharmed. It's interesting to note that in the passage where Jesus is teaching in in the parable in verse 25 and 27, the language that he uses for the storm, this extreme weather event, whatever it was, there's no special vocabulary there. It's just the normal word for storm. I think the idea is building our life on Jesus is what sustains you, yes, through the extraordinary, but also in the ordinary stuff. Just the day in and day out struggles of a life in a broken world. Ever since Adam and Eve ate the fruit, Stuff just doesn't work right. And even in the midst of that, Jesus sustains his people when we build our lives on him. So how do we do this? I love how New Testament scholar Craig Blomberg put it. We must build a solid foundation that combines authentic commitment to Christ with persevering obedience. There's a dual nature to this. As Jesus concludes the Sermon on the Mount, his definitive teaching on what it means to live as his disciple, he says that life on the rock means sharing bedrock beliefs and practices. Things that we should believe, things that we should do. So let's talk about those in that order. What should we believe? What are the bedrock beliefs of the Christian faith? About 13 years ago, a man named John Brandick, 62-year-old British man, was told that he would succumb to pancreatic cancer within a year. Doctors gave him at max a year to live. And he decided that he was going to have the best year of his life. So he, he cashed in his 401k, sold his house. I mean, he just, he got rid of everything and he just lived it up for a year. Went out to eat all his favorite restaurants, went on vacations, took a couple cruises, bought gifts for his family and friends, you know, would, would go out and every now and then just rent a real expensive car just to drive a, you know, Lamborghini for a day or whatever. Like, he just, he lived it up. At the end of that year, he went to the doctor for a checkup. Doctor said, John, I've got some good news for you. <laughs> Don't get ahead of me. We were wrong. 
It's not cancer. It was just an inflamed pancreas. You're going to be fine. Is he? <laughs> because now in face, instead of facing death, he's facing life with no money. Here's the point. What you believe about the world that you live in will dramatically affect the way that you live. Your understanding of the reality that you're in will dramatically change how you live your life. The core convictions and bedrock beliefs that we have absolutely shape how we live. And so we need to make sure that our beliefs are in line with what Jesus believes. Now let me be clear, a preacher can spend his entire career unpacking that idea, right? You know this, you know this, right? You can spend your whole life doing that and I've got about 15 minutes left. So we're going to have to move fast. But let me give you a three-point summary of the bedrock beliefs of the Christian faith. I'm drawing primarily on the Sermon on the Mount, but there are other places in the gospel that echo this and overlap this teaching. Here's the first bedrock belief of the Christian faith. Number one, Jesus is who he claims to be. Jesus is who he claims to be. Matthew tells us the crowds were amazed at Jesus' teaching. Why? The text says because he taught as one who had authority. Right? The core conviction of the Christian must be this. Jesus of Nazareth was who he said he was. If you don't believe that, you're not a Christian. You might think Jesus is awesome. You might be, as my friend Kyle Eidelman says, you might be a, a fan. You're not a follower. You, to be a Christian, you must believe that Jesus is who he says he is. Jesus is who he claims to be. And the church has to stand on that. That is the bedrock. It's the deepest foundation. And you just need to know that in the future, this church, and I hope every church, but this church specifically, will boldly and regularly, and I hope winsomely affirm that Jesus is who he said he is. The second person of the triune Godhead in bodily form who lived a sinless life and died on the cross in our place for our sin and rose again on the third day so that we could have eternal life with God that starts now and carries on into eternity. That is who we are. It is who we will always be. The deepest layer of bedrock is that belief. Life on the rock starts there. But there's another layer to it. If that's true, then the second bedrock belief is this. Jesus' authority overrules our opinions. <laughs> if he is who he says he is, then you don't get to outvote him. There's a refrain in the early part of the Sermon on the Mount. You've heard that it was said, but I tell you, five times Jesus says that. You've heard that it was said, but I tell you. He doesn't root his statements in some endless succession of rabbis. He's not quoting people. And he's really, he's not even proof texting. He does quote the law, but then he builds on it. You've heard that it was said, but I tell you the point is this if Jesus is who he said he is then my opinion about something is always going to have to play second fiddle to his if he spoke about it and if Jesus is silent on that it automatically moves that issue to the realm of the non-essential it automatically moves it to that which Paul talks about in Romans 14 of these disputable matters Here's what I want to tell you. The church in the future is going to need to keep the firmest of grips on what Jesus said and hold very loosely our opinions on issues Jesus didn't address. 
The way forward for the church as a whole is a white-knuckle grip on what Jesus said and lived and a pretty loose grasp on everything else. Now, that's not to say these things aren't important. They are. They can be. But they're not ultimate. And they should never divide us. These issues should never cause a break in relationship. This is what matters. Jesus' person, his work, his teaching. Jesus' authority overrules our opinions. There's another bedrock belief that we share, and it's this, that Jesus' values drive our actions. Jesus' values drive our actions. When I was in seminary, my New Testament professor, Dr. Bob Lowry, pounded this into our head. He would say over and over, probably every class, behind every imperative, command, is an indicative, a statement of fact. He pounded that into our head. Here's what he meant. Everything Jesus commanded is an expression of who he is. Behind every thou, you know, thus saith the Lord, is a statement about who God is. The foundational belief for Christians, the very basis of all of our ethical choices, must derive from the character, life, and teachings of Jesus. And it may sound trite to some people. <laughs> we can put it on a little bracelet. What would Jesus do? Man, that is a great way to live your life. I can't think of a better one. I don't think there is a better one. What would Jesus do? What if you began to wake up every day with that thought? If Jesus woke up in my body today, in my house, with my family, in my job, how would he live? I'm going to do that. In other words, Jesus values driver actions. What was important to Jesus should drive how we live our lives. Living a life on, on the teachings of Jesus is the, is the only way to build a solid life. Nothing will shake you. The storms of life may rage, but you will stand firm. It's the only way to deal with negative change. We like positive change. Positive change is good. On my sabbatical, I was out in Montana. I got to stay in this beautiful cabin. I'll show you pictures later. It only recently gained a, a bathroom. It was a dry cabin prior to that. And just a few steps away was the outhouse. And I was really glad I didn't go a few years earlier. Because, you know, in the mountains at night with grizzly bears and mountain lions. And, I mean, he was showing me trail cam footage of this ginormous mountain lion that was there that week. And like, okay, thank you, God, for indoor plumbing, right? Like, good change is good. Bad change is tough. That's hard. And the only way to weather it is building your life on a foundation that does not shift. I, the Lord, do not change, Scripture says. You build your life on a foundation that doesn't change, and no matter what happens in your life, you're going to be okay. We like it when the weather's fine, but when it turns stormy, what are you going to do? Well, you've got to build your foundation on the rock when the, when the weather's good. Do it now. We don't know how long it's going to be before Jesus returns. The men in the parable had no idea when the storm was coming. So we have to build our lives, our common life together as a church, on these bedrock beliefs of Christianity. But it cannot be just believing the right stuff. It also has to be how we live. Those two things go together perfectly. And so not only are there bedrock beliefs, there are bedrock practices. See, I'm grateful that Jesus made it abundantly, unmistakably, unavoidably clear. Right belief leads to right action. 
In fact, I, I, I think I can make a pretty strong case that right belief divorced from right action makes a bigger mess than you having the right beliefs to begin with in the first place. It was Brendan Manning who said, the single greatest cause of atheism in the world today is Christians who acknowledge Jesus with their lips and then walk out the door and deny him by their lifestyle. This, this, that's not the way to live like Jesus. We have to adopt these bedrock practices. Now, again, unpacking that could take a career. Let me give you three that I think are present in the Sermon on the Mount, obviously echoed other places in Jesus' teaching. Neil gave you a spoiler alert earlier. Here's the first one. Love God and love your neighbor. The first bedrock practice of the Christian faith at its deepest foundation, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Now, the interaction that caused Jesus to say that is a little bit later in Matthew's gospel. This interaction with the teacher of the law where he said that, it's actually after the Sermon on the Mount. But you can see those ideas kind of permeating his message here on, on that day on the side of the mountain in Galilee. In fact, Jesus takes the idea of love your neighbor. He ramps it up even further by commanding us to love our enemies. And much of the ethical content of the Sermon on the Mount is the application of both of these ideas simultaneously. When Jesus says at the beginning of chapter 6, when he talks about giving to the needy, it's the idea of loving God. I so appreciate what Fred had to say about everything we have is his, right? So when we do this, we're loving God with the use of our wealth, and we're also loving our neighbor. It's both together. One of the things that we want to be able to do here at Chapel Rock, again, we don't know how long it's going to be, but maybe we have another 60 years of ministry before Jesus returns. We don't know. But we want to be able to continue to do that. And so one of the things that you're going to hear us talk about over this year are some special projects. The elevator is in significant need of repair. The walls in the Fellowship Hall are, you know, they work, but it's rough. Uh, and, and there are a few other things that we want to do around the building. I just want you, I'm telling you now, uh, at some point later this year, you'll hear us talk more about this. We're not taking on any debt. It's not a campaign. We're just calling some projects. We're going to save up the money. And when we have the money, we're going to do the project. Just like you do in your house, okay? Um, so that, that's, but it, it comes out of a desire to show radical hospitality, to love our neighbor. God's given us this incredible facility. We need to steward it well, Right? And, and, you know, the building itself is not 60 years old, but some of you are, have reached that milestone in your life, and you know that when you go to the doctor, the conversation changes a little bit, right? This, this, let's do these things to keep you healthy as long as we can. Those are, there's some, some things we need to do around here to keep the, the facility healthy, and we want to be able to do that. This is a vital part of loving God and loving our neighbor. This, this bedrock practice of our faith is loving God with everything we are, loving our neighbor as ourselves. That's, we can get our hands around that, right? The second one's a little more abstract. It's, no, it's not less important. And it's this idea of humble righteousness. One of the themes that is woven through the Sermon on the Mount is this idea of humble righteousness. In the message, Jesus gives several warnings against doing acts of righteousness, either for the praise of human beings or, or even from a place of wrong motivation. You can do the right thing from the wrong motivation and it still doesn't please God. So this command to live with humble righteousness is a safeguard against hypocrisy on one hand and licentiousness on the other. So church, in the coming years, if we want to continue to reach our community, living lives that are truly and legitimately different from the world around us, lives of holiness, lives of righteousness, that we look different from, from a world that doesn't follow Jesus, but doing so with humility and grace and compassion 
is going to, as our culture moves further and further away from its Judeo-Christian roots, that is only going to become more and more important, not less. It's not an either-or thing. It's a both-and thing. Living lives of humble righteousness. The third bedrock practice is bold fruitfulness. We see this a couple ways. First of all, living the way Jesus says to live here takes guts. You got to be bold. It, it's, it's an absolutely countercultural way to live. You know, when, you, when you're building a house, digging down to bedrock is work, right? It's hard. You, you got to just kind of go, okay, it's going to be a day. It was neat to be back in Montana this last week. Hadn't been there since 2005. We lived there from 03 to 05. And uh, had a nice house, and uh, it was really cool. I get to, didn't get to go by the old place, but um, the, the soil in Montana is not like Indiana. Y'all can grow anything here. I mean, you just walk out in the yard and dunk, hit the shovel, and it just sinks down nice and deep, and it's great. Out there, I, I planted some trees, and I had to use a pickaxe. I am not making that up. It's not this much topsoil, and then just... Donk is rock and clay, and you got to bust through it. Now, you know, thanks to Google Earth, you know, hey, the trees are doing great. Um, <laughs> it takes work to dig down to bedrock. It's a whole lot harder than just slapping some boards on the ground and starting to build. That's what I did in COVID with the kids' tree fort. The implication here is that this life, this life with treasures in heaven is a life wholly built on Jesus. When we decide to live our lives wholly built on Jesus, to work toward this bedrock practice of bold fruitfulness, we get to experience these greater days that lie in front of us and not behind us. I told you before, I asked Dennis Fulton, uh, Neil's predecessor here, to, to share some words. Um, you saw him in the happy birthday video earlier. Uh, it, it was longer. And, but he said one thing that so caught my ear, and I want you to hear, I think it's so important for you to hear him, especially those who knew him, to hear him say this. Listen. You've had a lot of blessings from him. You've blessed me and mine. So I want to be sure that that blessing continues. In your celebration, why don't you have a time of expectation and ask God what he's going to do in the future my confidence is that Berea's greater days is not in her past years, but the greatest days could yet be ahead. Did you hear that? Greatest days are not in the past years, but they may be ahead. That's my prayer. That's been my prayer for eight years here. I pray that you would echo his prayer in your own prayer life. That as we live lives of bold fruitfulness for the kingdom of God, the greatest days lie in front of us. Even in the middle of a storm, can you have that confidence? Yes, if your life is built on the rock of Jesus Christ. See, when the storm was raging, where do you think the guy who built his house on sand went? Next door. Hey, my house is gone. Can I, like, come in or... Yeah, man, we believe in this thing called radical hospitality. Come on in. You've got opportunities this year to be in prayer 
to be in service for God and thinking about how he wants to create this bold fruitfulness in you. Pastor and scholar Dale Bruner, Dale Bruner rather, wrote, there's no need to fool ourselves by saying that Jesus' ethic is not difficult. Jesus' Sermon on the Mount requires red blood and moral investment. It is a tough way. The successism of both secularity and super-spirituality lacks the moral fiber and intellectual meaning found, live, found in life lived in obedience to Jesus' demands. And so my question for you today, Chapel Rock, is this. On what are you building your life? We can't be like my friends in Kansas and build their life on a foundation that cracked. And everything but Jesus is a foundation that will crack. And nor can we be like, like the guy in England that just lived it up and gave no thought for the future. We still need to do that. And the only way to do that is to live a life wholly built on Jesus. Did you hear me today? That God's calling us today as a church to live lives. The only kind of life that will thrive, that will last, is a life wholly built on Jesus. So I'm asking you, will you do that today? If you've never made a decision to live your life built on him, you're going to have an opportunity. In just a second, we're going to stand and sing together. I would invite you to come forward and make that decision. Live your life built on Jesus. Maybe you once made that decision and have drifted. You've strayed and you've tried building your life on other stuff. And maybe you put some things in between Jesus and you and that foundation. And you're here today and you're going, man, this just does not work. And my call to you today is to this. Repent. Turn. Change. Decide right now. No, I'm going to build on Jesus and nothing else. Maybe today you're in the middle of a storm someone to come alongside you and pray with you. We'd love to do that. I'll be down front. Pastor Fred will be down front. We'd invite you to come and maybe we'll talk to one of our elders in the next step room. I'm going to ask you to stand with me and we're going to sing together. And do you respond as God leads you today?